At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Everything that lives is designed to end. We are perpetually trapped in a never-ending spiral of life and death. Is this a curse? Or some kind of punishment? I often think about the god who blessed us with this cryptic puzzle, and wonder if we'll ever have the chance to kill him. We mean to cancel the world you civilized people made. We will simply erase history from the time that machinery and weapons threatened more than they offered. And when you die, the last living reminder of hell will be gone. Kind of takes the fun out of being alive, doesn't it? Order, only chaos. Kind of takes the fun out of being alive, doesn't it? Only chaos. As I say, variety's the spice of gnosis, but nostalgia is a nice seasoning in the, quote, all learning is remembering feast of Plato. The singer is Estero, if you're curious. The clips are from various mediums, and I can't remember a few of them. Oh well. Let's remember and forget together, here in the desert of the real. As once again we go together down so many rabbit holes, with Alice, Sophia, Inanna, Persephone, and other dynamic Luciferian heroines that place their blue, red, white, and black pills into a blender and drank a milkshake of cosmic adventure. Spastomy! This is madness! Hush! Radio. An initiation by conversation into the dark corners of myth, magic, and meaning. A crash course in cult culture and conspiracy. A virtuous virus invoking and informing history, holiness, and heresy. Each week I, your host, Miguel Connor commandeers your connection to bring the most accepted and rejected scholars and provocateurs to your attention. Fun, compelling, and deeply weird, this is the blow-your-mind cocktail party conversation you always wanted to listen in on. What is the universe without each sunrise? And that's how we judge our gods. Not on their math. 
but their poetry. Ready to go down that rabbit hole with that milkshake of cosmic adventure? Don't leave it in the yard of conformity, because it will bring all the Archon boys. Oh god, I thought that was absolutely dreadful. Instead, drink it on the edge of town and offer Diogenes a sip, as well as a joker and a thief. After all, one of the main tenets of Gnosticism is that you start with the position that everything is false. That you've been completely deceived by everyone and everything. That you yourself are a lie, an affront to the truth. Gnosticism is having a dark night of the soul every time you wake up in the morning. Life sucks, but being is awesome. Remove all the bullshit layers. Do not try and bend the spoon. That's impossible. Instead, only try to realize the truth. What truth? There is no spoon. There is no spoon? Then you'll see that it is not the spoon that bends. It is only yourself. Maybe it's a bit of histrionics. But with the Gnostic stance, you'll at least perceive new and invigorating dimensions of history, culture, and metaphysics. You'll lose your ignorance, but not your innocence. Most important, with each revelation, you'll find a new, vibrant dimension of yourself. Get closer to understanding your true purpose in this galactic penal colony, in Mithra's abode. It's either that, or those boy archons in the Yard of Conformity will rape you to forgetfulness. Praying to the gods to have mercy on us all. The gods have no mercy, that's why they're gods. As Beth Martin said, the thing you're here to do won't leave you alone. And as Jung said, free will is doing gladly and freely that which one must do. I know who I am. After all these years, there's a, there's a victory in that. Take the Virgin Mary, for example. Chaste, but somewhat distant. Comforting, but never energizing in Christian propaganda. Her role outside of being a God-bearer is basically that of an NPC in the canonical babble. Kinda useless for the most part. Unless you're running out of wine at the wedding of Jesus and Mary M. at Cana. That's it. Not much else, it seems, if you're a true seeker warrior. Let's move on to Mary M. or some of the other more mercurial figures in the esoterica. Nothing to see here, folks. Well, if it's not a personal question, are you a virgin? If it's not a Wrong. You might have missed an especially important dimension of Mother Mary. You may never look at her the same very soon. And this new dimension makes a world of a difference in unleashing your anima and lunate magic. For the secret history of the Virgin Mary, 
We have the pleuromic pleasure of being joined by the brilliant Marguerite Regalioso. She will be discussing her book, The Mystery Tradition of Miraculous Conception, Mary and the Lineage of Virgin Births. By Pandora's Box, what a fantastic book. What an amazing rabbit hole that truly galvanizes and upgrades the divine feminine. I am the beginning, the end, the one who is many. Sure, sure, in the Gnostic Gospels, Mary isn't just some Mary Sue or jailbait for sky gods. No, she is presented as part of Christ's inner mystery circle asking sophisticated metaphysical questions on the nature of reality. However, there is an even deeper side to Mary in other apocrypha and secret traditions. In short, Mother Mary really is as mercurial and inspirational and groundbreaking as Mary Magdalene, and in fact a necessary accompaniment. Her archetypal, mythical tale is as impactful as that of Alice, Sophia, Inanna, Persephone, and the other dynamic Luciferian heroines. The time running this place, and your insane little kingdom, is over. You've been playing God for long enough. I simply wanted to tell my stories. Marguerite has written an enlightening book and get ready for an engrossing interview where we even discuss those boy archons and the future of humanity. As a bonus for subscribers, I'll include our powerful and touching interview with Megan Watterson on her best-selling book, Mary Magdalene Revealed. It will be a perfect compliment. These two Marys are two pillars of lunar, serpentine energy that will get you so much treasure as you go down another rabbit hole. If it can be destroyed by the truth, it deserves to be destroyed by the truth. Nothing is as it seems. Don't go down the road of conspiracy theory, but instead embrace conspiracy therapy. Regardless, as it said, a conspiracy theory is just history plus time. Both the Virgin Mary and Mary Magdalene might be the biggest cover-ups in the history of consciousness. Well played, Demiurge, and your censoring pen. Well played. It's like my daddy used to say, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. It's a bubble universe ruled by an asshole god. Every morning is the dark night of the soul. Nothing is as it seems. Especially reality. Clark Emery said the awakening of an individual is a cosmic event. I say the awakening of an individual is a cosmic rebellion. Chris Hedges once said, True spirituality is always an act of rebellion. What we do in life echoes in eternity. 
But sometimes the tricksters that are Sophia and Hermes have their own cover-ups. I mean, the Empire placed a hologram over itself and became the Anglo-American cartel. England's poet is William Blake, the great Gnostic sage, as we've demonstrated here so many times. The United States poet is arguably Robert Frost, also a Gnostic, as we've demonstrated too, and Harold Bloom demonstrated in many of his works. I mean, the guy wrote a poem called The Demiurge's Laughter. <laughs> a poet is the shaman of the soul, the Orpheus that doesn't fail to bring back the anima from the collective unconscious. Thus, both Blake and Frost are more like their magical gnosis, like two antennae have been sending those valis pink beams for generations across the Empire, fooling Marduk's code and waking up other poets and thus continuing our cosmic rebellion against Yaldibaldi and his Karens and Katamites in the establishment. I am not a number, I am a free man! Conspiracy therapy. Nothing is as it seems. We're going to break open the Black Iron Prison, knowing the truth of the Virgin Mary and the secret society around her. And this might break the hologram of the empire that never ended. The two Marys, repeating, are the pillars of light we need right now. Led us to our interview with Marguerite. Write your own gospel. Live your own myth. This isn't a world that anyone with any sense stays in or spends much time worrying about. You're living in a carnival, throwing little plastic rings at oversized pop bottles, hoping to win a prize. What are you gonna win? A two-week vacation? A new car? A little money to retire on? It's all just a shitty, sawdust-filled rabbit. The things you care about are useless where we're going. This is the Aeon Byte interview, and with us we have the pleasure of being joined by Marguerite Regalioso to discuss her incredible book, the Mystery Tradition of Miraculous Conception. Marguerite, thank you very much for coming on the show. You're welcome. Thank you, Miguel. It's an honor to be here. 
Oh, as we talked before, I, I really loved your book. It brings so many new dimensions to, uh, well, beyond Christianity, just to spirituality in general. And I think our audience will love to really hear about your fascinating and sound ideas. So we can't wait to get started. But with us, we also have the Moondog Vans. Vans, how are you doing? I'm doing well this afternoon. I'm looking forward to the show, as I always say I do, and I sure certainly do because I love things concerning divine feminine. And so this should be very interesting. I have a conception there. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, you're going to get that. So, Marguerite, before we really start on your book and your scholarship, uh, what led you to this research? You know, it. <laughs> Let's put it this way, um, on the academic front, I was doing, I completed my master's and PhD at the California Institute of Integral Studies. And I was going to do a dissertation, a doctoral dissertation, cataloging every possible mention of priestesses in ancient Greece. Prior to starting the research for that project, I received an intuitive downpour uh, one day while working on my master's research and reading a book by Anna Maria Corradini in Sicily, where she was talking about Demeter and Persephone in such a way where she said that this was really a, a story of, of parthenogenetic birth, you know, divine birth of, of Persephone out of Demeter. Really, Zeus had nothing to do with this impregnation and this conception. And the way she was writing, I don't know what happened, but I was standing in my brother's apartment and it was like, you know, the thunderbolt came into me. And I said, oh my gosh, I think women were really doing this. Women were really doing divine birth. So coupled with that, I had um, run into Drunvalo Melchizedek's books, The Ancient Secret of the Flower of Life. And in it, he says that his guide, Thoth, um, says that virgin birth was a real thing. And um, he didn't say a whole bunch more about it, but that Mary was involved in it. So that was something rattling around in the back of my head as I went around and looked at all of these ancient references to priestesses in ancient Greece. But what did I find out? So much evidence pointing to the possibility that women and girls were doing divine birth. So I started collecting all of this stuff and I said, okay, you know what? This is gonna be the focus of my dissertation. It's not just gonna be a cataloging of priestesses doings and identities. It's going to be a revelation of all the evidence suggesting that divine birth was really practiced in ancient Greece. So that was the initial focus of my research. But of course, in doing the research, I found out that these divine birth stories take place all over the world. And then, of course, the most famous divine birth of all is that of Mary. I had wanted to include her in my dissertation, but it was already 600 pages. Um, and I had to kind of cut it there. And so it took me from the time that that dissertation came out in 2007 until, you know, now in 2021, for this book on Mary, where I consolidate all the information and apply it to Mary, has finally been coming out. Wonderful. 
your book was an incredible read and uh, brought a new dimension to somebody to a figure that seems uh, for many people very static and cold a virgin mary but we yeah. certainly but we want to get into that for sure but maybe for the audience uh, could you explain what a divine birth is because some people think well a divine birth is when the holy spirit or zeus or somebody claims that alexander the great was born was a demigod what exactly is a divine birth right so there are different ways in which these kinds of things can happen but basically by divine birth or virgin birth i mean a conception that takes place without male sperm and there are various what i discovered in my research in ancient greece is that there were various stages of this practice that the original practice was actually uh, what's called parthenogenesis where the woman had the spiritual technologies to be able to engender the the conception of the egg in her own body without any outside assistance at all and then as this process sort of degraded over the, I don't know, thousands of years, um, you started having situations where women, human women could get impregnated by interdimensional beings. There's still no male human sperm, but these are impregnations across the veil, so to speak. And those were initially, those impregnations were initially intrusions. So when you're talking about Zeus and so forth, those were intrusions into the divine conception technologies that the women, the priest, the high priestesses would be involved in. And then the women started cultivating that activity under the pressure of patriarchy, acquiescing to it and making use of it. And that's where you have someone like Alexander's mother, Olympias, who supposedly willingly consorted with a version of Zeus, Zeus Amon, the his Egyptian form, and conceived Alexander the Great. And then the kind of the latest phase of it was the Egyptian pharaohs, the conception of the Egyptian pharaohs. But by that time, you are now having the human males involved in the sexual union process. So there is an exchange of sperm, yet it is still claimed to be a divine conception because supposedly the god is inhabiting the body of the male but it's a different animal now because male sperm is involved and therefore the child can be taken and into the male line and um, you know, the male given credit for it and so forth. So there's been a process, but the original deepest practice of it, which is what Mary accomplished. And by the way, her mother, Anne, which we can get into was parthenogenesis where a woman would know how to generate the heat, the sexual energy, and the androgyny within herself in order to have this light conception, this flash of light happen in her egg and start the meiosis of her egg. And even today, as you write, uh, there can be, I guess, uh, pathogenesis or asexual births with mice, right? This does yes. It is scientific. Well, there are animals that spontaneously will have this happen, uh, often under conditions of captivity. For example, every once in a while, I get these emails with articles about this happened to a shark in captivity, this happened to a snake, this happened to a Komodo dragon. There's, you know, wow. um, 
And they have induced it experimentally in animals like sea urchins and rabbits. And there was a mouse experiment that I describe um, in my books. Also my first book, The Cult of Divine Birth in Ancient Greece, where um, Jerry Hall, a fertility researcher in Los Angeles, was able to get mice eggs to spontaneously start dividing um, through the use of a chemical. So in, in these experiments, it's either chemical or electrical shock. Electrical shock in a way being a version of the light conception, right? But these, in this case, it was chemicals and the zygotes started growing in the lab and he put them back in the mice mothers and they were taking and growing. And when the National Institutes of Health got wind of the experiment, they told him to shut down the experiment, experiment ostensibly for ethical reasons. Too threatening. Wow, incredible story. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park when he goes, life will find a way. And I've always <laughs> said, uh, I've always said publicly that let's say you had a an alien invasion and they wiped out all of uh, the male gender or on the other side, they wiped out all of the females. I say, somebody would get pregnant, you know, or That's right. find a That's way right. to come. Men would get pregnant or women would get pregnant by themselves because life finds a way. But at the same time, that's not the reason they were doing it right. Or they weren't doing right. it so that the woman could have a full bed and get to pick what she wants to watch on TV to right. <laughs> have a nice life without a guy. There was a, That's there was right. a specific reason for this. Yes, it was, it was the highest level holy practice that a spiritual woman could engage in. The purpose of it was to bring in an avatar, a very high holy being, who it was believed could only come in through this kind of engagement on the part of a priestess. This type of being could not come in in any other way. Now, there was, however, high tantric sacred marriage unions that were happening that is another high way of doing it where there's a high priest and a high priestess who can conceive. Um, I think that the Egyptian pharaohs tried to replicate that, but I think there was already some sort of infringement and corruption uh, going on there. But basically it was understood throughout the ancient Mediterranean world and all of the world that if you want to bring in the highest level being you want to have the priestess not engage with a male energy in any way. She has to become one with the goddess of the universe and really link up with her. And that is what is going to call forth an extremely high vibrational being to her body and then onto the planet. Yeah, incredible concept. And so the audience knows this was something practiced not just across the Mediterranean or Northern Africa, but probably around the world. It was, it's almost like its own secret society of people yes. wanting to create saviors and, uh, you know, enlightened people. Yes. Yes. And there were books I I researched about that. You know, there are stories um, in India, there are stories in, in the native American traditions. Um, and, really all over, probably if you bore down and, and go into um, legends and so forth in many different locations, 
you will find this story happening. Now, I happen to know or know of several women who claim to have conceived in unusual ways without male sperm. So there are stories in contemporary times as well. Oh, really fascinating. Yeah. And also to be sure, uh, I wanted to, well, something I wanted to bring up to you is the idea of a virgin really is very different than what we think is today, right? I mean, uh, Venus or Aphrodite was called a virgin. Even in the Gnostic Gospels, bar below, the great mother of creation is called a virgin. A virgin was really uh, a complete woman, right? Yeah, complete and sovereign. Now, oftentimes, again, this being would not engage in a union activity with a male energy of any kind. Um, as a part of her divine technology. See, the goddess herself, if you see, think of her as creatrix of the universe, she's the one who did it all. She's the womb of all creation. The male came out of her. And so um, it, it, the original template for the creation of the entire universe or reality is parthenogenetic. It's not really. Um, sacred sexual union of a masculine and a feminine. If you go back far enough to all of the stories, you'll find a parthenogenetic origin story in, in all of it. When it comes down to the human women, again, the highest level of this practice was required virginity so that there would be no intrusion into her space of um, the karma or energetic imprint of a man or any of his issues or anything like that. Because the minute you have two people coming together, all of their issues, all of their karma come together. Right. So if the woman has been in deep levels of training for lifetimes, she knows she is a high holy vessel. Um, she, in this technology, she doesn't want anything else entering her womb space. Her womb space needs to stay in, in violet. And um, that is what's going to bring the very highest of the beings forth. Now, I think what is happening here is it's partly a memory of the original method of human reproduction. When humans were male, female put together and Plato talks about that there was a time when we were together, but then the human being split into male and female. And so if you think back to, wow, well, that original state, that original human form was more of a kind of totality, then it becomes understandable how virgin birth, divine birth, sovereign birth could have been the original form of reproduction. Now that makes sense. I mean, all these ancient stories talk also about the the primal man and so forth. Uh, Genesis starts out with Adam and Eve being one being. Yeah. And, and these they're sort of split up, but uh, yeah. they definitely follow the same sort of a myth or narration about yeah. How yeah, we in one version, guided. right? In one version of Genesis, male and female, they created them. That doesn't mean they created males and females. It means they were male and female at the same time. <laughs> you know, I mean, so you can see if you look, if you know how to look into these ancient stories with that kind of eye, like, oh, I get what they were saying. 
Yeah, no kidding. And I, I, I have to ask this, and it's almost sad to hear the answer, but it has to be asked because I think we, everybody who listens to the show knows the answer. But what happened to this tradition? And of course, it's always a very, again, it's not a happy answer, even though it should be, it should have never happened because I'm like, well, what would have been so wrong about coming out with uh, 20 Jesuses a year? <laughs> yes. Better world, right? <laughs> we, exactly. Well, what happened is that we did have that alien invasion that you jokingly referred to earlier. We did have that alien invasion and we're still encountering it and, and dealing with it even more intensively now these days with everything going on. That's the evidence of it. Um, there have been beings that came to the earth plane uh, and wanted to claim it for themselves um, and or, you know, they're hostile, they're hostile to human life. They want to control human beings and harvest us for our energy in various ways. They don't want us to know that we are divine beings. So they've successively over thousands of years dumbed us down, put the veils over our eyes, disconnected us from our powers, uh, the knowledge of the magical world, the knowledge of the interdimensional world. And it's just gotten worse and worse and worse until we are in a very thick three-dimensional asleep state for the most part on planet earth. And with all of that devolution, of course, divine birth increasingly was disappeared. It was made to be a, a physical impossibility. You know, that was a big program that had to be put forth and um, it had to be a physical impossibility medically. And then it even became a physical impossibility spiritually. And it's just hung out as this strange artifact in Christianity that people basically have to deal with through faith, but they can't really make sense of it until now, because my book really explains how Mary was doing what she was doing how she was part of a whole tradition of women all over the world. What were some of the components of these rituals and technologies and so forth? But uh, the veils have been pulled over our eyes and now the veils are coming off, strangely, at this very intensive time on planet Earth, but synchronistically because it is time for the veils to come off. We need them to come off. This is just one of many things that we're starting to see again, understand, clear up, purify, resurrect, and perhaps think about using again going into the future. Mm, that is well said, and I agree. Your work, I think, is a game changer. And uh, these aliens you talk about, we just call them archons here on this show, That's right. Marguerite. Archons. That's exactly what they do. Drain yep. us, enslave us, keep us asleep. They do. And they were they were already mentioned in the Gnostic so-called Gospels. You know, if you go to any of those pieces of literature, they're all listed out who, you know, how they work <laughs> and all of that type of thing. And there are many contemporary seers who are saying the same things. They may not have even read the agnostic gospels or even know that that's where the origin of the word comes from, but they're using it. They're seeing these beings in action. They're seeing their legions and the other beings that they've controlled to do their bidding and so forth. So we're, we're really thickly in it right now. Yes. And uh, I think uh, hopefully the veils will be lifting. And it's interesting, too, because after reading your book, I was thinking two things. Uh, one, even the Gnostic Gospels do have sort of a solo birth because it Sophia is. herself, yeah. 
That's right. Gives birth by herself. You know, she gives birth to the demiurge. He's not yeah, Jesus, right. <laughs> but it's right. there. But and see, then, and see, Miguel, see what happens there. It's already there's already an infringement in that story. There's already mm -hmm. a hijacking and a distortion, because Sophia, who actually is the high holy womb of all creation, is somehow made to be a lesser than being. Now, if you look in those stories, the God that is like three or four rungs above her can reproduce parthenogenetically. Just go look into it and he's yeah. male. But when it comes to her, suddenly it's the demiurge, <laughs> you know, and this problematic being. And it's like, wait a minute, why are we being told these stories when parthenogenetic birth is part and parcel of the goddess herself? And, you know, but all of these stories got distorted. Hera has a parthenogenetic story, but she gives birth to Hephaestus, who is the smith god who has a deformity. You know, oh, yeah. so, right, you know, everything becomes twisted around, distorted, but there are definite mentions in those Gnostic Gospels, and I refer to them throughout some of my uh, books and the Nag Hammadi texts and so forth. Yeah, and the other thing, too, is... Uh the the main at the beginning the main weapon of the archons and celine lily wrote uh, an excellent book if you get a chance called the rape of eve is uh, -huh. uh sexual violence against eve, right. who's a version of sophia it's like they they want to make sure to pollute and just bring down the woman until she's in a state of complete crisis and disassociation that's right that's the a number one thing they needed to do. They had to go after the women, the human women. Then they had to go after the male-female harmonious relationships. Then they had to go after the indigenous wisdoms people. They had to go after the trees that are the portals and the old guardians um, of the earth. They had to go over, go after the forests. They had yeah. to go after, you know pretty much everything down the line and where we are today is um a very cut off on the whole humanity from what we need to be connected to yeah it's a mess i'm just thinking yeah even in the old testament they cut down the asherah groves That's that was right. one way the one way to cut us off from the great goddess absolutely um, because those trees are portals you know those groves are are places of enchantment where you can go into the open state of consciousness etc so you know it is important therefore to lift the veils on mother mary what mother mary was doing what all of these divine birth priestesses were doing um and say okay what did this involve and what of this do we want to resurrect for the positive now well said and i agree a hundred percent and uh, i want to get to the infancy gospel of james and it, here's a synchronicity marguerite uh, i was contacted by your representative right after i was actually looking at the infancy gospel of james it was a perfect sync oh. and but i was i was doing it because i have always thought i'm not alone that uh, the new testament 
you've got in the Gnostics hid this even more, but you find in the New Testament that both the dual aspects of the goddess, Asherah and Anath, are in the New Testament. Yeah. And the Virgin Mary is simply uh, Asherah dressed up or, you know, hiding uh, Asherah, while Mary Magdalene is the wild Anath, if you would, yes. the, the passionate side. And I was looking at the infancy gospel of James because, yeah, Mary dances, and that's the story where um, where Asherah has to dance in front of the great god El, which was part of the ancient tradition. So wow. I thought it was an interesting sync right there. Oh, that's 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 lovely. That's a lovely connection. Yes, Mother Mary is three years old when she is presented to the temple as a virgin priestess, and she does dance. She she presumably does some kind of ritual dance. What I describe in the book is that I she was being trained by these virgins in her mother's sacred sanctuary for the three years, the first three years of her life. So that's partly why she knows how to dance when she gets to the temple and she knows just what to dance. It could also be past life memories that she was um, having flow through her. Yeah, probably. And <laughs> I'm sure Christians listening to this will be like, the Virgin Mary dance? I mean, she's the one who, who wanted to, who wanted more wine for the guests at the wedding of Cana. That's about yeah. as wild as she got in these traditions. I, but know. <laughs> I know, I know. And what I say in this book is that not only did she dance, but she had to have a high level of erotic feeling in order to accomplish this divine birth, she had to engender kundalini heat within herself. And uh, I show through other texts that, that this was a highly sexual act for a woman to, a highly erotic act to become one with the goddess of all creation so as to conceive divinely. It's a very sexual thing. So there's, so there is that aspect of her and, um, she may have been using sacred medicines. There's, a, you know, I talk about a little bit of evidence about what she was eating, the food from angels, eating like a dove. These are all references to possible mind-expanding uh, medicines that were part of the divine birth process that the women would need in order to open to the requisite degree. And there are many other things that I find out about Mary by looking at her biographies from the later centuries uh, that I'm going to be writing about in a second book. But I had developed, you know, over the last year and a half or two years, really, I mean, a much more fleshed out ver view of who the Virgin Mary was, is, and shall be. And that fleshed out view can give all women a much more fleshed out view of themselves, what is possible for them to be healers, bringers of avatars, exorcists, mentors to others, high level oracles and channelers, etc. As we see Mary grow, in a new understanding, so we see ourselves grow in a new understanding. Well said, indeed, and I yes, well said. And uh, getting into well, it's called the infancy gospel of James, but as you say, we should call it the birth of Mary, yes. and it gives a, a whole picture of Mary 
um, which again is a game changer, but we should probably talk about her mother, Anne. Uh, could you give us a brief history of the really uh, touching and powerful story of Anne and her husband, Joaquin? Yes. So this infancy gospel of James is was rejected by the Catholic Church, but it was more embraced by the, the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And as it turns out, it is the basis of all of Mary's feast days in the Catholic tradition, the Roman Catholic tradition. Her birth, her present, you know, her presentation in the temple. It's like, where do we get all this information? There's never, it's never in the Bible. Well, it's in this gospel, which um is written by the James, who could have been one of the sons of Joseph by a previous marriage. He was a widower. And, um, and so um, it could be a very old document. Now, scholars and theologians debate this, and they're like, no, it was probably after, it was probably retroactively written, blah, blah, blah. And I've looked at those arguments, and I'm like, I don't think, I don't think, um, those are such big problems. I think this could be an authentic, very old document. So what it tells us, it opens with Anne, who, as it turns out, becomes the mother of Mary and her partner, Joachim, who are at this point older, past traditional childbearing years. In fact, you know, quite into their elder years. And they are upset that they haven't conceived and we see a description of Joachim going out into the desert to pray about this situation and Anne going into her garden by the laurel tree, which is a symbol of her being connected with the whole oracular tradition through Delphi, which had the sacred laurel, etc. And she has an experience there. And I tease out the different symbols and words used to describe what happened to her so that we can understand that, oh my goodness, she was engaging in a parthenogenesis ritual at her advanced age. And it was possible for these women to do that because they were holy women throughout their whole lives. They may have been trying divine birth um, throughout the decades of their lives, never successfully accomplishing it. And I think that's why they're upset about not having this child. It's not because they haven't had an, an ordinary child. It's because they haven't been able to divinely conceive the way she was uh, trained to do. So she does have this divine conception of Mary. She is told this by the divine beings called the angels, but the, that means messengers, divine messengers. Her, her partner, Joachim, is called the same, and it is Mary. She names her child Mariam, and uh, that name is connected very much with divine love, according to possible Egyptian tracing linguistics. And then we hear how Mary is brought up in the sacred sanctuary of Anne, tended to by these virgins of the temple who come to her, teach her and do various things until she is given as an offering to the temple, a virgin uh, at age three, as I mentioned earlier. Yes. And uh, as you just mentioned, so the audience is clear you argue that the name Mary is not a proper name, but might be a title. Yes, yes. Which meant divine love, essentially. It comes from the Egyptian Mary, which was a title connoting that and the concept of love that was often used 
uh, in association with Isis. And it was a title that would be given to even pharaohs and things like that. Um, and so that it became a proper name, but it really was a priestess title. And that's why you see so many Marys running around <laughs> Jesus <laughs> in the Old Testament. Like, why did they, you know, because they were all Marys. They were all members of what I call the Holy Order of the Marys, the Holy Order of High Women who were schooled in divine love on a number of different levels. No, that makes sense. Uh, and yeah, a lot of Marys and running around and you get confused with all the Simons and it's like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, all of these names, you know, have sacred meaning. Right. And so when we understand what that is and in, in, in its original um, spiritual sacred form, we can say, okay, you know, these, these women were participating. They were part of a priestesshood. Yeah. The scene and the way you write it was really touching. You could make this into a really cool movie where Joaquin is out in the wilderness doing his sort of shamanistic ritual to the, yeah. to the heavens. He's supplicating, going in complete altered state of mind. And then Anne talks to her servant and she just, you know, proudly puts on her wedding dress and just walks around. It was just uh, That's right. the, the, the duality is really powerful. Those scenes. Yeah. Yeah. I know. I love that, Miguel, because I think really this could be a movie and let's put it out there. Let's hope that it will be a movie done with integrity and honoring of uh, the the story, um, you know, of all of us as researchers and so forth. That, that it's really done authentically. No, it would be a, yeah, it would be a great movie with a lot of powerful visuals and uh, absolutely yeah. And what's also interesting is that you write and you argue very well that Anne's story is. Anne and Joaquin's story has a lot of parallels to that of Sarah and Abraham. Absolutely. Yes, they are doing what Sarah and Abraham did. And I have a large section of one of the chapters that looks at that. Uh, we're going off the work of Savina Tuval in her book, Sarah, the Priestess, I believe. And uh, she already did the groundwork for me to just be able to come right in there and say, yes, and let's take it one step further. What Sarah and Abraham were doing was actually divine birth magic. And that's how Isaac was born. And that this is the foundation of Judaism. And it certainly answers a lot of questions because I'm sure all of us, including Vance, you and I, when we were young, we were like, what is going on with Abraham and Sarah? They're pretending he's a sister, That's handing right. it over to the Pharaoh. You're like, what were these people smoking? But That's once right. you put it that way, that they're a sort of a sacred couple, it all makes sense. <laughs> That's right. And they were half brother and sister. Mm -hmm. uh, they were put together as consorts. But what I discussed throughout this book is that Abraham with Sarah, Joachim with Anne, and Joseph with Mary, and Zechariah with Elizabeth, the divine birth mother of John the Baptist, that none of these men were conjugal husbands. They were guardians and spiritual assisters in these women's practices. And 
Probably none of them, with the possible exception of Abraham, engaged even in any kind of high sacred sex rite with these women. I think they were there guarding the, the, the women's backs and energetically lending their support to the process through the prayer, you know, as you're saying, as I discuss in this book, so that uh, we see that this is a different form of partnership for priestesses. These women were lifelong virgins, really. And I talk about evidence and context in the ancient Levant world of how this could be possible. Indeed. And you even quote uh, Philo of Alexandria, and this is a big giveaway. And he says, quote, the seed of God conceived Isaac. So that was already in the air that he was right. He was brought about by divine birth. Yes, he talks about the four mothers of the Hebrew tradition, uh, Sarah, Zipporah, Rachel, and Leah, as all being divine birth priestesses, essentially. Now, I don't even go into the discussion of Leah and Rachel. That's for someone else to do, or maybe another book, but it's really all right there. I mean, he talks about them as being virtues, meaning that they're priestesses of a very high order that, you know, he's telling us basically celibacy was what they were doing and they were engendering divine offspring. Yeah. And I'm sure there'll be more research and writings on this. I hope you've opened the floodgates because we can even talk about Simon Magus and Helen of Tyre, Paul and Thecla. There's probably all these other power couples out there that we've all missed. So yes. (laughs) Yes. And what was really going on with them? I think we get a little hint of this in the alchemical tradition with the Soror Mystica. The alchemist male would always have his female partner in it. Of course, those women all got obscured. We don't really know who they are. <laughs> but um, yeah, um, so it's looking at different versions of coupling and different types of relationships, which I think is completely fascinating. Yeah, it changes a lot and there's so much potential. But um, yeah, getting to the, the rituals and uh, I shared with you before the interview how uh, my wife and my uh, sister-in-law are devout Catholics and I showed them your research and everything and they were just blown away. They were like, ah, this is like a huge missing piece and all that. And the funny story too, Marguerite, is that uh, my sister-in-law is uh, in her 30s. She wants to have children and she's like, ha. I don't need men. I'm going to do this exercise and have my own kid. And I'm like, I'm like, Abigail, this is not just like doing yoga once an hour or a week, you know, or sitting there meditating for 30 minutes. This is a, this was a life, lifelong process. I told her you need to go to a temple now if you want to do this. That's right. It was not only lifelong, but life, life, lives long. Okay. Sri Kaleshwar, the ancient um, or the the Hindu saint who is now crossed over to the other side, revealed to us in his book, The Real Life and Teachings of Jesus Christ, which he says is a combination of what he uh, received from the ancient palm leaf manuscripts that he collected in India and beyond. And his basically his own past life recall is that Mother Mary had literally millions of lifetimes on the planet in order to perfect herself to the degree that she did. Now, 
just like Jesus who made it easier for people to release their karma. So Mother Mary's feat in this regard of conceiving Jesus has made it easier for women to conceive divinely, if you get that parallel, right? Um, that said, though, it really takes a high level holy woman who has been practicing not only in this life, but many lives and has lots of codes uh, for, you know, from the interdimensional realms and understandings to be able to conceive in this way. So it's, it's an interesting idea that your relative there has. But again, this is not about just doing away with men um, by regular householder people. This is, you know, and it was very interesting because when I first started this research and, and I, had, I had been working with a little bit of medicine, sacred medicine throughout this process, not a lot though. This, this mainly was um, a direct intuitional and intellectual exercise for me. But, but the, I really had a very stunning session in which I was presented with, do you, did you come here to create unity or more strife? And did you come here to, um, you know, with this divine birth material to crucify men or to create new understandings. And I really had to be confronted because at that point, I was still working out a lot of my anger toward patriarchy. And, you know, um, I, I, it, was, it was a moment where I, I really had to make that soul level decision that yes, I'm going to use this to create unity. This is not about leaving men out of the picture at all. This is simply about looking at a technology open and available to women that has been shoved aside um, and probably hijacked in other ways by these negative forces and their human um, counterparts and so forth. So it's never going to be used by just regular women who are in three-dimensional unconsciousness. It's only going to be accomplished by women working at very high ritual levels. Yes. It can be black magic, but um, we want it to be the work of the light. So yes, there's a lot to it to, to get trained for this. And I think it's gonna be a number of generations before we're even approaching having enough of the technological codes for how to do it. Oh yeah, and I mean, when I read The Birth of Mary, especially through your book, I, I realized, yeah, this is, it's a team effort. I mean, it's you had the, the high priest, Zechariah, Joseph, Joaquin, the virgin, everybody's working together to bring I about see. something just that will make, objectively make the world a better place. And everybody's imperfect. And in The Birth of Mary, everybody has doubts and fears and they makes do. mistakes, but they're all working together. Yes, and they are slapped upside the head every once in a while. And <laughs> yeah. unfortunately, it's usually the men that have the doubts because we are a bit thick sometimes. They're, well, they're abstracted. <laughs> it's not happening to them. You know what right. I mean? It's not happening in their bodies. So the angels have to come and go, hey, yo, buddy, you're trying, you're, this is real. This divine conception is real. You're supposed to take care of this woman, remember? And Joseph was like, oh, yeah, right. Okay. I'm getting the program now. But, um, there was something else I was going to say. Oh, yes, about group, group ritual. What we find out in this birth of Mary slash infancy gospel of James is that Mary was working with 
seven other women in a ritual. It was eight of them, like the eight spokes of a wheel working together. And there were two women who conceived from this ritual, Mary and her aunt, Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. What I show is that this conception of Elizabeth happened at the, from the same ritual. And so the other six women were supporters. And it may be that um, there is a little preliminary ritual to the women start starting to do this practice, which the metaphor of in the gospel is that they are weaving. But the weaving is happening on very deep interdimensional levels. But as the preliminary, they all have to pull different colored threads from the hands of the priest. And what I, what I believe is that um, the two women who picked the scarlet threads, which are Mary and Elizabeth, are the ones who were meant to conceive all the way. And the other women were meant to be participants and supporters in that process. But they, they needed a group ritual for the energy to generate the energy like a wheel that's spinning, um, a literal spinning wheel, and for the protection that was needed. Exactly. And Vince, what do you think so far? Do you have a question for Marguerite? <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah, my head's spinning. It's a lot. Yeah, yeah. When I read the book, I was like, whoa, (laughs) this is awesome. Yeah. One thing I was wondering is, uh, do women that, uh, you know, manage to achieve this parthenogenesis, um, are they allowed to have children afterwards? Because, you know, the Bible says that Mary, you know, um, that Jesus had brothers. So I wonder how that works. Well, you know, more convincing about this is the fact of Anne. It looks very much like Anne in some of these other, again, suppressed histories and so forth. She went on to have another daughter by the regular means after Mary. And that woman's uh, name was Paragita, but she also named her Mary. So there we go again. Too she many Mary. That priestess title. <laughs> okay, so yes, Anne did, did go on to have um, a regular sexual life. But Mary, it's not so clear because in the Gospels, you know, the canonical Gospels, it says Jesus's brothers and sisters, and you can find the names of the males there, but you have to go to outside sources to find the two female names. Um, It is just simply not clear whether these were physical children of Mary or whether, again, they were the previously conceived children by Joseph and his prior wife who died. I am really starting to feel and think based on the infancy gospel of James slash birth of Mary, that these were previous children, Joseph's previous children who end up being considered the brothers and sisters of Jesus simply by virtue of Joseph's uh, consort relationship with Mary but I don't know that she really did conceive children herself in, in the ordinary way. I think they were, they were Joseph's prior children. How about others, um, you know, uh, in uh, you know, mythological history, uh, other, other uh, virgin births, uh, did the mothers have other? Right. Know, Nothing is coming to mind uh, in that regard. 
you know, because we barely get the information that they even had a divine conception, let alone who these women were and what was going on <laughs> with the rest of their <laughs> lives. Right. I mean, these things are hidden. So, yeah. um, I think that they're, that they could, if they wanted to, but often they might not. Then there's the whole question of the Vestal Virgins in Rome, which would have been going on at the same time as Mary's conception of Jesus. And I talk about that a lot, Miguel, in the um, in the book, The Mystery Tradition of Miraculous Conception. I don't know if you picked up on that part of it, but, you know, they they have to spend 30 years in that holy order as virgins from the time they're six, anywhere between six and 10 years old. And then they are let go from it. Now, apparently they were then yoked in marriage with somebody afterward. But we don't really hear anything about them uh, after their time of indentured servitude <laughs> to the Roman <laughs> state, where yeah, really. their womb power, a.k.a. the fire of Rome, Right. Uh, Without the Vestal Virgins, the the empire would collapse. Yeah, because their womb power was literally being siphoned into that fire. And if that fire ever went out, they would be beaten, practically killed. Now, what I show is that they may have been involved in occult divine conception rituals. There are numerous indicators in that regard. We are at the end, the end of this story, and hopefully the beginning of a great journey for many listeners. So, Vance, I'd like to first thank you for keeping us company on this great uh, journey. Well, you're very welcome, and uh, nice to meet you, uh, Marguerite. Thank you, Vance. Happens to be my mother's name, by the way. Oh, isn't that an interesting synchronicity, you know, like that? Thank you. I could feel you holding space. It was nice. I was. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And now, Marguerite, again, what is your website for the audience? And again, I'll have it on the show notes. Correct. Yes. It's seven sisters mystery school.com, S E V E N. And people can just go and explore. All your books, media appearances, everything's there. Yes, yes. You also have lessons, one-on-one work, everything. Yes, I work with people one-on-one if they if they are feeling um, awakened or validated by this material and would like to go further or would like some witnessing or um, feel that now there's somebody who could explain things that have been happening for them um, or they want to go deeper on any level of connecting with their wombs or the or Mother Mary, whatever your gender. Um, Yes, I give one-on-one sessions as well as as classes that are ongoing. Many classes are in are, are on demand now. I have new things continually coming up. I have an oracle training, the Priestess of the Dove Oracle training that is um, being offered again this year in 2021-2022 for women who want to open their oracle channel and connect with what I call their divine Sophia oracle wisdom. So that's a... Um, a real tool and technology that that women can have as a part of this practice. Wonderful. Some gnosis, as they say. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, that's great. Well, we really enjoyed, I know I enjoyed reading the mystery tradition of miraculous conception. I advise the audience, please go out and get it. But uh, Marguerite, we really appreciate what you're doing. And we certainly appreciate your time and for coming on Aeon Byte. Thank you so much for having me, Miguel and Vance. It's really been wonderful. I've so appreciated your questions and clearly that you have read the material and you bring 
you've brought to the conversation um, so many other st related streams. It's been great to have this conversation. Oh, it's been a joy. We really appreciate it. And we look forward to your future work. That's for sure. Thank you. And there you have it, my beloved true seekers. The first part of a sizzling interview with Marguerite. Embrace your inner virgin and God creator. In our second part, we'll talk about the reality of the Jerusalem temple virgins. Yes, it was a thing and a fascinating thing. Marguerite will speculate on when the Archons will strike in our modern days and what to do about it, as well as how alien abductions relate to her research. She'll provide her own takes on Mary Magdalene. She'll also share on both ancient and modern spiritual practices that can help you, yes, give birth to divinity or just make them your own for your own goals, and much more. As a bonus for subscribers, I'll include our powerful and touching interview with Megan Watterson on her best-selling book, Mary Magdalene Revealed. It's a perfect compliment. So become an AB Prime member or Patreon at Patreon for the full two pillars of light. Only $6.99 a lunar cycle, or whatever you want to pledge on Patreon. Or you can now subscribe to an easy-to-use private RSS feed from Red Circle, found in the show notes for less than $5 per month. And you'll get the last 200 shows in the podcast provider of your choice. And it takes Stripe, since many of you hate Patreon or PayPal. No matter where you subscribe, it will cost you about a buck per episode, and that's a deal of many lifetimes. Membership to AB Prime or Patreon mid-levels include full access to more than 14 years of quality interviews. You'll get an invitation to the Inner Sanctum of Gnosis Facebook group and my Discord channel. Even support in the form of some shekel donations to PayPal or the U.S. mail really, really helps. There is also a link on the show notes if you want to donate via Stripe now. I also have the merch store and an Amazon wish list. Finding Hermes is going strong, and so are our virtual Alexandria-exclusive private meetings that include exercises loyal to the ancient Gnostics, and a whole lot of stimulating conversation and a Q&A. If you want to understand and experience Gnosticism in its full impact and liberating secrets, become an official citizen of the virtual Alexandria. Whew, I know that's a lot, but I but I gotta stay spread out as the Archons are always there to cancel my ass. If you need help with all of these choices, just message my ass. I'm always here to help, and I truly appreciate your help. Thanks for being here. Thanks for being yourself, your true self, here in the desert of the real. Hello and goodbye, as always.
BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.